Well, it is Missions Month here at Central, and in some ways, you know, Missions Month is a little bit of a misnomer because we understand that mission is not something we do, but mission, if you're a Christian, it's just who we are. If you were to somehow take mission out of the church, it's not that the church has one less thing to do. You simply no longer have the church. You have something else entirely. Well, during Missions Month, one of the things that I enjoy doing is just kind of introducing you to missionaries from yesteryear. And this morning, I'd like to introduce you to a missionary named Leslie Newbegin. Now, Leslie Newbegin, he was born in 1909 in England, and uh, he was sent away to boarding school, and he found his way to Cambridge University in the 1920s. And it was there at Cambridge that Leslie Newbegin began a relationship with Jesus. In the 1930s, if you fast forward, by that time he'd gotten married to his wife Helen, and then they were commissioned and sent off to India to plant churches there. And one of the reasons why we know who Leslie Newbegin is is not simply because he planted churches in India, though he did, but because he was also a prolific writer and lecturer. And so one of the things that happened was in the 1940s, uh, Leslie Newbegin began to realize that what the church in third world countries like India needed was the exact same thing that the church in the West needed as well. And so Leslie Newbegin, he, he said this, that the consciousness that needs to permeate the church is that we are a body taken up into God's redemptive work, sent into the world to continue the disciple-making mission of Jesus. What bothered Newbegin, though, was that he said when he planted churches in India, they just instinctively got this. This is who they were. They got it. It was like right in their DNA. But churches in the West, in, in European countries, and, and in America... Well, we struggled to understand our missionary identity and that the culture in which we live in is our mission field. And so it's kind of crippled the missionary consciousness of churches in the West. And so he wrote about this. He wrote extensively about this. And he pointed to three main reasons that he said this is why that takes place. First, he said, the church in the Roman world was defined by their mission in the Roman Empire. Once Constantine declared Christianity legal, well, then in a lot of cases, Christianity became little more than a folksy religion where we didn't really take our identity in Christ seriously. And sometimes even worse, it became a state-run enterprise where Christianity was kind of dominated over people and used as a, a way to get rich. So second, in the West, our idea of church is often confined to a building where the biblical idea of church engages the marketplace. But because we've privatized and redefined church to be a place we go, hey, don't be late for church, instead of being the sent missionary people of God, well, we've largely removed ourselves from the marketplace and simply practice our faith where it's comfortable with other believers in a building. Third, lastly, he said that the modern missions movement, and by the way, by modern missions movement, he was talking about late 1800s, early 1900s, but in many ways it continues to this day. He said it helps cement the idea that mission is something the church does, but is not who the church is. Therefore, what we do is we send missionaries to far off places all around the globe, but the church in the Western world can sometimes be little more than a social club for her members. And so, 
This is what Newbigin's writing about. And he actually said that the greatest threat to missionary work in third world countries was that missionaries from the West would take their idea of church, the Western idea of church, and implant it in third world countries rather than taking a biblical understanding of who the church is and implanting a biblical ecclesiology in these places. And so you can imagine that in many cases, Newbegin, well, he wasn't all that liked, but for others, he really caused people just to stop and think and go back to the scriptures and just to ask the question, okay, as the church, who are we to be? And because of that, his work is continu- continues to be studied in churches and in seminaries around the world. But you know, Newbegin's favorite way to teach, it, it wasn't writing, though he was a pro- prolific writer. It wasn't preaching, though he preached from pulpits often. It, it wasn't uh, lecturing, though he lectured in front of classrooms. Uh, Now, his favorite way to teach was just to have a meal with people, because there's something about having a meal with people, isn't there, where you can just get to know them. You know, you invite someone over to your house for, for dinner, or you go, you meet someone at a restaurant, and then the conversation just begins. The walls kind of break down a little bit, and you find out, hey, what brought you to this area? Tell me about your, your wife, your kids, your job, your hobbies, all this stuff. The, 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 the barriers just kind of begin to break down. You get to know people. There's something about having a meal with people where you really get to find out who they are. And Isn't it amazing that when you read the stories in the New Testament, how often it's around a meal? How many conversations took place over a meal? How many sermons were preached during a meal? How many revelations happened during a meal? Jesus, we find him often eating with people. It's one of the things that the Pharisees had such a hard time with. Jesus, how come you're eating with tax collectors and sinners? How can you associate with these people? Eat with them. I mean, this thing of having a meal with them, it bothered people. But that's what Jesus does. And this morning, we're going to look at maybe the most famous meal of all that he had. It's the last meal uh, that Mark writes about. It's Jesus and the Last Supper. Before we get there, though, well, Jesus, he's going to visit a friend, Simon the leper. Let's check that out first. Mark 14, 1 through 11. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. John Mark writes, Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him, but not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you'll always have with you and you can help them whenever you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, What she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. 
So Mark begins the countdown, really, to Jesus' death and tells us that Passover is two days away. Now, two days away, if you're thinking like along the Jewish calendar, it goes like this. Today is day one, tomorrow is day two. So when they say two days away, what they're really saying is tomorrow's day of the Passion Week. We've kind of been making our way through the Passion Week here in Mark's Gospel. And if you've been with us, you know Mark spent a lot of time on Tuesday. A lot happened on Tuesday during the Passion Week. He's only going to spend 11 verses on what happened on Wednesday. But these are some important 11 verses. Now, Passover is approaching. And so as Passover approaches, all these pilgrims will descend upon Jerusalem. And when I say all these, I'm talking the neighborhood of 80 to 300,000 Jews will make their way from whatever towns they're living in throughout the Judean Empire, and they will come to the city of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, the population at that time, was only about 60 to 120,000. So, I mean, this is a massive increase. I mean, you can just imagine, right, the city swelling. And as it swells, just the, the smells and the sights of the people and the animals all just crushing upon this city. And so as this happens, you know, it, it, it was a time where opposition could easily, like, rise up and riots take place because they're living under Roman occupation, and so because of this, this was a time when the chief priests, the police officers of the day, they're on high alert because they don't want any riots to take place. They, they, they don't want anything bad to happen. And so they're, 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 they would be watching out just to kind of make sure that everybody's like tempers are under control here. In fact, Josephus, if you remember, if you've heard of him, he, he's a great Jewish historian. Well, he wrote about several uprisings and riots that took place during Passover festivals. And so th this is, there's a lot going on in Jerusalem. And because there's so much going on in Jerusalem, well, the religious leaders of the day, they were basically the Roman puppets. And they don't want to do anything to kind of upset their standing, the, the little deal that they have with Rome. They hate Rome, but they, hey, they have a system that works. And so they're good with it. And so what they know is this, we can't have an uprising now. Like, now is not a good time for a riot to take place. So while they are determined to get Jesus and they want him dead, they know that this week is not the week for it to happen. You can't do it during Passover week. There's too many people in the city. It would be too easy for just a spark to fly, tempers get out of, out of hand, and everything just be a mess. And so the religious leaders, they know this. This is not the week. And so what the religious leaders are doing, they're just waiting and they're just plotting, thinking about when would be an appropriate time when the city has calmed down and then we can get Jesus. So are waiting and plotting. We find at the home, who is Simon the leper? We don't really know. I mean, we know that he lived in Bethany. That's about it. You know, Lazarus. Uh, Mary, Martha, they lived in Bethany. Perhaps they were friends. Uh, we confident of this, that he was not leprous at this time. Okay? Because if he had leprosy, uh, he would not be allowed in his home. He would be removed to the outside of the town. He had to be outside of the camp. So he would not have been home. He's likely one of the people in the course of Jesus' ministry that Jesus had healed. So there's probably a friendship there. Simon had probably invited Jesus over to his house for a meal. And so Jesus table perhaps as they're eating we don't really know but the point that mark is driving us to is not who is simon is not why is jesus at simon's house 
No, the point that Mark is making is what took place in Simon's house. And he to this woman, this anonymous to the company and busts open this alabaster jar, a fancy jar at the time, and there's containing pure nard, and then that pure nard, which is extremely expensive, spills out into this extremely expensive perfume, which pours over Jesus' head. We know from other gospel writers that this uh, perfume would have cost 300 denarii. Now, 300 denarii, Mark tells us, that's over a year's wages. If you remember back when Jesus feeding the 5,000, the disciples tell Jesus, hey, Jesus, how are we going to get the money to feed all these people? It would take 200 denarii to feed 5,000 plus the women and children. So he's, this woman just spent 300 denarii on this, on this gift that she gives to Jesus, this extravagant. I mean, she shows us here just this extravagant devotion and love for Jesus. She really feels for us the type of commitment the disciples would have toward Jesus. But the people in the room are taken aback because they're looking at it all and they're saying, I mean, this is overboard, right? This is, this is a little extreme. You didn't really need to go to this level. It seems almost like a waste. And what Mark is causing us to do as the readers is to look at that and just ask the question, how much is too much in our devotion to Jesus? Like, where do you draw the line and say, okay, you know, that's good, but if you go over that, I mean, it's, it's really a bit excessive. Like, how much is too much? When can you give too much? You know, a little perfume? That's good. A little bit of money? That's good. But the whole thing? All of it? I mean, the people in the room, they're, they're talking about it with each other. Saying, this is foolishness. You know what she could have done with that money? I mean, there are so many opportunities. Look, at, look at, we got poor people all over Jerusalem, especially right now. I mean, we could have sold this. We could have gone. We could have helped people. And in just a matter of moments, you just wasted all on Jesus? A little bit, a little anointing? That would have been fine. The whole jar? I mean, come on. There's a better way to spend this money. And Jesus, what does he do? He rebukes them. He comes to this woman's defense. It says, why are you bothering her? What she has done is a beautiful thing. So, I mean, you're always going to have the poor with you. You can help them with whenever you want. And basically, he's pointing the finger at them and saying, if you really want to help the poor, you could be out helping the poor right now. But it's obviously not that important to you because this is how you're spending your time. But me, you're not always going to have me. She's recognized that. And so she's done for me all that she could. She's prepared my body for burial. It's interesting. You, you remember if you were with us just a couple weeks ago, we talked about the poor widow with the two copper coins, right? Anonymous woman. We don't know who she is. Don't know her name. Nothing like this. And what happens? Uh, she's in the temple. She's giving everything she has. Her last two copper coins, which add up to one penny. She's giving that. And who is she set in contrast to? The religious men of the day. I mean, Mark puts her in contrast to the religious men, namely the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who they're taking advantage of the poor people, of poor widows, and, and they come and they give out of their wealth. They've never given sacrificially in their lives. It's never like hurt to give. It's always just out of their wealth, out of their abundance. You know, I can give out of my wealth and I'm just fine. I can, go the, I can walk away. It's not going to hurt. 
And this woman, because of her faith, she gives sacrificially to the point where it hurts, you know. This is, this is sacrifice to give this much. And Jesus, he points her in contrast to them, and he calls his disciples over, and he turns their heads, he says, look, this is faith. This is what devotion looks like. And now you have this anonymous woman, and she's put in contrast to the men in the house. And then the men, the men in the house are looking, and they're saying, this is unreasonable. I mean, this is foolishness. Think of all we could have done with that money. And this woman, she said, no, I'll break it. I'll give it all. I'll pour it all on Jesus. Whatever I can, I'll do. So these anonymous women, what they do is they show us what true devotion looks like. That it's everything. How much is too much in our devotion to Jesus? You can never get too much, right? Uh, there's not some point where you look at it and you can say, okay, that was the line, the line. That was too much. You, you just went overboard there and how, how you're loving Jesus. That's a little too radical, you know? That make me, make me uncomfortable when you, when you kind of go to that extreme. That's crazy. No, no. There's no such thing as too much. Why? Because Jesus deserves it all. And these women, it's not like they got famous from this. We tell the stories about what they did. We remember what they did, but their names... They've been lost in the midst of history. We, we don't know their names. We just know what they did, this extravagant devotion and commitment to Jesus. And so it's a challenge to us. Because if we're honest with each other, we, we, we would all say that none of us are completely devoted, right? None of us give all of our time, all of our talent, all of our treasure to Jesus. We hold something back. We all do. From time to time, we look after our own self-interest and what we like and what we want. There are points that we hold back. And so the challenge of the examples of these women is to not hold back, is to grow in our devotion to Jesus. You know, that we should be able to look at today and say, you know what? I spend my time, I spend my talent, I spend my treasure more faithfully, more devoted to Jesus than I did a year ago. I can see how my relationship with Jesus has deepened. I have grown in my knowledge and appreciation of him and how I'm taking my knowledge and, and love for Jesus and I'm engaging other people. I'm sharing other people. I'm making disciples because we're growing in our devotion with him. And that's the challenge is to grow. Grow in our devotion to Jesus. You know, this anointing reveals something else though. It reveals that Jesus knows that his death is imminent, Right? He says, she's preparing my body for burial. He's reminding the disciples again, I'm about to die. It's right around the corner. He knows his death is imminent. But at the same time, he's also confident of the good news that's going to happen because he says whenever the gospel is preached, the story of what she did will be told. So there is this good news that will pierce through the tragedy. Is there tragedy? Yes. But there's good news that's going to conquer it. But the tragedy is right there in the room because Judas is there. And think about Judas. We know a couple things about him. We know that he, was, he counted money, right? He was the treasurer of the group. He counted everything. And by this time, you get the idea that this, this extravagant gift by this uh, anonymous woman was like the last straw for Judas. It was like, 
hey, Jesus, we, we've been out doing all this stuff. We're living like nomads, living in borrowed homes, having borrowed meals. I mean, do you know what this money could have done for our ministry? I mean, he's the one who's been counting it. He sees the finances, and he knows we have nothing. There's, there's nothing in the coffers here. You know, this is a year's wage. This could have done a lot. And, you know, the disciples, as we've been with them through the Gospel of Mark, you understand that they still don't get that Jesus is going to die. I mean, it's Passion Week. They still don't really understand what Jesus is doing. And what they do know is Jesus has been talking a lot about his death lately. I mean, we thought he was going to come and free us from this Roman occupation and deliver us from this economic misery. But all Jesus is talking about how he's going to die. And so you get the idea that this is just the final straw for Judas, that he's like, I'm out of this. I mean, how, how long are we going through this? And so what does Judas do? Well, he goes and he finds the chief priest. Because he knows this. These, these guys, their attitude about Jesus, they, they want him gone. They want him dead. So these chief priests, they didn't recruit Judas, right? They're not like trying to go and infiltrate the 12 and say, okay, if we can get one of you guys to turn on Jesus, that'd be really good. No, what do the religious leaders have done? Well, they've already made up their mind that this is not the week. We can't get him this week. It's Passover. There's too many people. There's too much risk of a disturbance. And then we're going to lose our standing in Rome. This is not the week. But now everything's changed. Everything changes real fast because Judas flips. And Judas says, oh, no, I'll hand him over to you. Well, they're delighted now. I mean, that, that speeds up the time frame real fast. Okay, let's go ahead and make this happen before Judas changes his mind. And so they agree on a sum of money. Mark doesn't tell us the sum of money, but we all remember it, don't we? 30 pieces of silver. You know how much 30 pieces of silver is worth? 300 denarii. Same price as the alabaster jar of perfume. So for the cost of the perfume jar, Judas sells out Jesus. And, but before he would betray Jesus, Judas would have a last meal with Jesus. Let's go ahead and check that out. Mark 14, 12 to 26. Mark 14, 12 to 26, John Mark writes, On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to Jesus, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, 
I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You would have thought that maybe Jesus would have been a little more clear in his instructions, right? Maybe made it a little easier for his disciples. He sends two disciples out and he tells them, find the guy carrying the jar of water. I mean, it seems like you give them a little bit more to go on, right? I mean, Jerusalem's just overwhelmed with people and they're just supposed to find a guy carrying a jar of water. Well, in those days, it was always the women who carried the water, okay? It was never the men. So you remember when Jesus went to the well? There's no men at the well, right? Jesus, he's meeting the woman at the well because it was always the women who carried the water. What would they do? They would go in the early part of the day, would get the water while it's still cool, bring it back to their house so that their house had water to drink all day long. So finding the guy carrying the jar of water, it might not be as hard as we think. And these disciples, well, they did find him. They saw him. They found him. They found the house, the owner of the house. They found the room. They found the place where they were going to set up preparations for the Passover. And, you know, the Passover, if you remember, the Passover commemorates uh, God's miraculous liberation of the children, the Hebrew children, while they were in slavery in Egypt. And so how, how the faithful Israelites, they would dab the doorpost with the blood of the lamb so that when the angel of death came and killed the firstborn of the Egyptians, the Israelites would be spared and they would be taken into the promised land. And this Passover feast celebration was just to remind them of their inheritance, of how God has freed them in the past and would look forward to the day when the Messiah would come and he would free them from the occupation, foreign occupation and economic misery in the present. And so this is what Passover celebration was all about. But Jesus had in mind that this last supper that he was going to have with his disciples, well, he was going to change that whole meaning for them. And so the meal was going great. You can imagine. I mean, it's been a tough time for the disciples. Persecution's increasing and the attacks on Jesus. Everybody knows the attitudes towards Jesus. Things have gotten hard. But now this is Passover. This is a feast. They're going to eat well tonight. They're celebrating, they're reclining at the table, because that's how you ate back then, you know? You'd, you'd, have, you'd lean on your left arm, and you'd extend your legs away from the table, and you just eat with your right hand, so they're eating. I imagine they're laughing, and they're smiling. They're having a good time. I mean, this is a feast, this is a celebration, this is what the Jews look forward to. And then Jesus said it, <laughs> changed the whole mood. You ever, you ever have a meal with someone, and then somebody just like blurts something out? And it just kind of changes everything right there. Like the whole mood just like takes a turn real fast. Why do you have to go and say that? You know, that just makes everybody uncomfortable. Jesus said it. One of you is going to betray me. What? One of us? Yeah. One of you who is dipping the bread into the same bowl that I'm dipping my bread into. One of you is going to betray me. That changed the mood real fast. And there was something about that moment when he said that, that all the disciples, that one by one, they find their way to Jesus and they ask Jesus during the course of the night, it's not me, is it? I'm not the one, am I? It seems like a weird thing to ask, doesn't it? I mean, why would you have to ask that? It seems like if you knew that you were going to betray Jesus to his death, like, you would kind of know you were going to do that? Seems like a strange thing to ask. 
But there was something about the moment, something about what Jesus said that all these guys, they knew those times when they thought about checking out. Because I think every one of them had thought about checking out at one point or another. Because they look at themselves and they hear what Jesus is calling them to. He's talked about the cost of being a disciple. He's, he's talked about his death and persecution that's coming. They've lived hard lives. It's not been easy. Yeah, they've seen miracles, but this has been hard. And when he talks about who they are to be, who he's calling them to be, you can imagine all of them thinking, I'm not that. I can't do that. How, how am I supposed to live this life? And so at one point or another, I imagine they've all thought about checking out. They've all thought about cashing in and just going back home and just finding the comfort and the bubble of their boat or wherever they were from. You say, well, this will be easier. And so they approach Jesus and they ask him because they know in their hearts, man, I've thought about selling out. I'm not the one, am I? I'm, I'm not the one who's going to do it, am I? You know, as we read this text, you ever been in a movie theater and like you know where the bad guy is like right outside the home and then there's like these innocent people inside and they don't know that the bad guy's right outside? And it's almost like you want to yell at them. The bad guy's like right outside. Like call the police. He's right there. And maybe you've been in a movie theater where someone even yells it out. Like that is right outside. As you're reading this text, you're wanting to yell to the side. It's Judas. Just go ahead and stop him. It's Judas. He's the one. Look at Judas. That's how we feel when we read this text. But you know what? If we were at the table, as we read this text, one thing that we have to know too is it was you. It was me. If we'd have been at that table, we'd have been asking the same question. Jesus, am I the one? Am I the one who's going to sell you out? Am I the one who's going to betray you? Why? Because there's been times that we've all been sellouts, right? I mean, come on. We can all point to times in our lives we say, I sold Jesus out. No, I know what Jesus said to do, but here's what the world was telling me. Here's what my gut was telling me. Here's what my friends were telling me. And so I just went with it. And I sold him out because it, it felt good. It seemed good. was easier. And we can rationalize it, right? We can go back and say, well, you know, Jesus, he's talking in the first century. Maybe, maybe if he were here today, you know, he would, we could nuance it a little bit to make ourselves feel better. Well, this isn't exactly what he did. It doesn't really apply to me like that. No, no, we've sold him out. We're, we've betrayed him. And this is what the disciples know, that they're betrayers all. That at one point in our lives, we've all trusted ourselves instead of Jesus. We've all trusted ourselves instead of Jesus. And listen, we're going to come to the table in just a moment. And we're, and we're going to celebrate communion together. And you want to get to know someone, you come to the table, right? You have a meal with them. And by coming to the table, we're just reminded who Jesus is, but at the same time, we're reminded who we are. But as we come to the table, we're not going to share our stories of betrayal. If we were to do that, it would just take far too long, you know, because there's so much we could share, stories big and small of how we've betrayed Jesus, how we've sold him out. If the disciples were to talk about all the times that they betrayed Jesus, Jesus even told them, hey, all of you are going to deny me here in a little bit. You're all going to desert me, and they would. And at that time, Peter would bluster, maybe because he just heard Jesus say, no, no, you're not the one. Uh, but 
They, they, he, would, he would say, nah, I would never. Yeah, you will. Because we're sellouts all. The, the disciples, one of the things that they were knowing is they're having this conversation with Jesus, and Jesus just says it, is that they were traitors. That they were sellouts. Like this, hopefully not. But sellouts nonetheless. You know what? We don't gather to tell our stories of betrayal. We don't gather to tell our stories of how we've sold out. If you really want to know someone, you have a meal with them. We gather and we remind ourselves of who Jesus is. That even when we're unfaithful, he's faithful. That even when we were to sell him out, he's not sold us out not even once. He's always good to us, always kind to us, patient with us. Jesus is faithful even when we're not. And so as we go through this passage, do you see the extravagance of God? How we would sell him out and we, and we would all have this check in our heart. I'm not the one, am I? But God, even when we are unfaithful, he did not withhold giving his one and only son, Jesus Christ, for us. You talk about the extravagance of this woman who pours a jar of perfume. Why? Because it's the extravagance of our God who would give everything for us. So we come to the table and we remember that Jesus is faithful. And so Jesus, he has this meal with his disciples and he gives a new meaning to Passover. And he says, take, eat, this is my body, his body for them. This is my blood, my blood for them. This is his body. For us, this is his blood for us. Heavenly Father, God, you are an extravagant God. God, we look at that extravagance sometimes and, and we might even think it's foolishness, reckless even, to give your one and only son whom you love for a bunch of sellouts, a bunch of betrayers, a bunch of traitors. God, while we were enemies, Jesus died for us. What a gift of extravagance. And so, God, we recognize that because of that, we owe you everything, all of our time, all of our talent, all of our treasure. And we're confronted with the same reality that the disciples were confronted with, that we have not given all. That there are parts in our lives that we have held back, that we have sold out, that we have looked out for our interests rather than the identity that you have given us. So, God, may we grow in our devotion to you as we make disciples, wherever it is we live, work, study, and play, we recognize we need your help for that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.